Today's episode is brought to you by Cliffhangers. There's no better, more potent way to ensure your audience is desperate for a sequel than to leave your plot off at some critical moment, like literally leaving your main character hanging from a cliff. What does that have to do with 2000's Mega Man Legends 2? Well, I'm sure plenty of you listening at home already know, but if you don't, we've got a hell of a history lesson for you at the end of this episode, so stay tuned to What Am I Podcasting For? What, were you expecting a joke opening? I don't have time, this is going to be a long episode. Hello, and welcome to What Am I Podcasting For? My name's Garlisle, and this show is the chronicle of my attempts to play through the entire Mega Man series, from Mega Man 1 to Mega Man 11 and as many of the hundred-plus games in between as I can manage. And today, we are going back to Mega Man Legends. Finally! This is one of the games I have been kind of most excited to play for the podcast. There's a lot of games in the Mega Man series that I have played before. This was probably the biggest title in the series that I had never touched. But there is a lot to cover about this game, so I'm going to kind of dive right in by first discussing the upgrades that have been made compared to the first game. First off, the visuals in this game are touched up a little bit compared to Legends 1. Characters are a little bit cleaner, they are a little bit more detailed, and they are even more expressive and animated than they were in the original game, which that was already a strength of the original game. The majority of the voice cast does come back, the only notable change I spotted was that Mega Man Volnut got a different voice actor who I think is the same voice actor as Ash Ketchum. I don't like it as much. It sounds younger, but like Tron and Teasel and Roll and everybody that are back are the same voice actors that we've come to love. On a control front, we probably see the biggest changes to the Legends games. By this point in the PlayStation's history, it was expected, more or less, that players had access to a DualShock controller, which was a controller that actually had two analog sticks and looked like a modern controller. And Legends 2 took advantage of this. You can now actually use the right control stick to control your camera and your aim. This is the thing that the original Mega Man Legends was sorely, sorely in need of. That was the thing that resulted in all of its clunky controls. And you can still use basically the same control setup, but there's a couple different options that the game offers you in order to be like, hey, try these out and see which one fits you, but all of them do take advantage of if you have a DualShock controller, you can freely aim, and that's a really good thing. Straight up from the moment that you pick up this game, it just feels better to play. It also took a little bit of inspiration from the misadventures of Tron Bond. It got rid of the kick function as a when you don't have a special weapon equipped, and instead gave you the ability to use that button to pick up and throw things, which in this game gets used to solve certain puzzles. You can pick up and throw reaver bots, which in some cases is actually the most effective way to deal with them. And in order to enable this while still enabling the special weapon system, you have the ability in the pause screen to toggle off your special weapon. Now, they still didn't allow you to bring all your different special weapons with you. If you want to change, you still need to go back to the flutter and talk to roll, and that is still something that drives me a little bit crazy. The special weapons in this game are a little bit more varied. There's a couple more interesting ones, and I will be mentioning a couple of them throughout the game because of that, because I did actually use them much more than I did in the original game. But this game still doesn't quite have 
free special weapon selection the way you would expect out of a Mega Man game. And I think that is, it's not as bad of a problem because it seems like the special weapons default to having more ammo in this game. And you can purchase later in the game basically a weapon refill canister for really cheap that allows you to refill your weapon bar. Plus, enemies in this game sometimes drop weapon ammo in addition to life recovery pellets, so you can get a lot more use out of your special weapons in this game, but they still have that fundamental, like, not quite feeling like a Mega Man part to them. Other things in the menu that have changed. First off, the UI does look a heck of a lot cleaner. The maps that you get in terms of auto-mapping. The original game had auto-mapping, but it wasn't very good. This one is actually a very solid auto-map. It's very detailed and textured, and you can like identify rooms just by how they look on the map. You kind of get markers for things like walls that you'll need to destroy with specific weapons, although those are fairly rare. You get the ability to look at different floors and see how they connect. There's a really cool function called Auto-Nav. You can turn it on for a specific location that you know about, and a little arrow will pop up back when you're playing the game again that will point you to that direction and lead you to that location until you arrive there. That's really cool. Navigating this game is much better than navigating the previous Mega Man Legends titles. And also, they doubled down a little bit more on RPG-style customization in this game, too. In the original game, yes, you could pick up upgrades to your armor and, like, an extended energy tank and stuff, and you did have the buster customization, which was nice. And all the aspects of the buster customization still exist in this game, and it's still well done. But also this time, you have multiple options for your different equipment slots, as opposed to just linear progressions. For instance, you can have the jet skates to do kind of your speed dashing around, and you actually get access to them very early in this game. But you can also get alternate boots that you can equip to prevent damage from specific floor types. You can get armor that boosts your defense, or armor that makes it so you're less likely to be knocked down by enemy attacks, and so on and so forth. You have more equipment variety available to you to customize Mega Man in this game, and that is, again, an improvement. And getting a lot of these things is improved too, sort of. The development room for Roll now allows you to see a list of the items that you have that she can actually like tinker with, and when you select them, she'll either tell you, hey, I can use this to make this item, or she'll tell you, hey, I'm looking for something like this, but if I had some notes on how, like, ballistics work or something, I might be able to do more with it, and sometimes that kind of hints at, like, hey, this thing randomly in a shop will matter for that. In short, generally speaking, Mega Man Legends is cleaned up on most gameplay fronts compared to the original game. Not quite everything got the improvement that it needed. Sometimes you really do have to make a really long track back to roll in order to switch up your weapons or to get to a shop in order to refill your energy canteen. And it can be a little bit frustrating and backtracky, and especially at the end of the game, light spoilers, if you want to go from the final save point back to roll or a shop, you're looking at probably traversing like 20 rooms that have literally nothing in them, which is kind of dumb. And was a problem in the first game too, to be fair, but I think it's actually made worse in this one sometimes, because the areas are just larger. But overall, the play experience for Mega Man Legends 2 is an expansion and an improvement on all the groundwork that was laid in Mega Man Legends 1. It's not perfect, but it, it feels old in a way that just feels old and not obstacle old, if that makes any sense. Anyway, let's put all that aside for the time being. We have to start talking about what actually goes on in this game, because there's so much that goes on in this game.
Mega Man Legends 2 begins with a press conference taking place aboard a massive airship known as the, and I can't make this up, Sulphur Bottom, which is a hell of a name because that's basically, you know, stinky butt. Anyway, aboard the stinky butt, Beryl's busy preparing for an interview alongside an old friend of his named Von Blucher. They were old exploration buddies, and they're talking about a location known as the Forbidden Island and wanting to make a return trip there. The Forbidden Island is so named not because it's like off-limits by agreement or anything, it's off-limits because it is perpetually surrounded by a gigantic storm. Only a handful of people have ever successfully landed on it and come back, and most of the time they didn't come back by their choice. Something happened there that sent them back. Most notable is the fact that apparently this is the island that Roll's parents traveled to and they disappeared on it. Roll and Volnut are back on the flutter and Roll's kind of just like depressed and stressed out and Volnut's being a very, very good boy intending to her. He's even wearing an apron. He looks absolutely adorable. And they're watching it on TV and Roll finally perks up when in the middle of this press conference, one of the reporters that comes up to start asking questions about the island starts warning them, don't you think like it would be catastrophic if something was found there? And Beryl suddenly recognizes the person as his daughter Matilda, Roll's mother. She quickly, however, makes her escape, claiming something about how uh, there is some child there who must not be allowed to awaken. Seeing her mother on TV rolls immediately like, okay, never mind my depression, I have to go find out what's going on, so we're gonna go look into this. That's the opening cutscene, then we transition over to our first gameplay section, which is kind of our tutorial. Roll, by the way, mentions, while we're on the flight to this location, that the reason we have none of the stuff from the previous game is that in order to fund their continued exploration and the flutter and everything, they have sold all of Mega Man's extra equipment, except for a new tool called the Aqua blaster, which is basically a fire extinguisher, which we are going to put to work in our tutorial, as Data just tried to cook and apparently set half the flutter on fire. So rather than shooting enemies, we are basically putting out fires and working our way through the flutter, and it's actually a half-decent excuse for a tutorial that's like low danger. We catch up with the sulfur bottom just in time to find out that it has launched basically a smaller pod ship towards the Forbidden Island. However, that subship gets shot down by Matilda, who is flying around on the back of a, and I can't make this up, robot dragon. And of course, we also find out that the Bonds were there at the press conference, and they snuck aboard the ship too, and now all of them have been shot down towards the Forbidden Island, and, well, that's a problem. The Flutter cannot fly through the storm to get to the Forbidden Island, so we need the parts to build essentially the ship that they just used to try to drop onto the island, which apparently was a design Roll's father had come up with. So we go to the nearest island, which is the island of Yazyonke, which is a snowy, wintry-themed island, kind of a sleepy village and stuff. There we're going to meet with an amnesiac mechanic named Joe, who's been building that exact kind of ship, and maybe actually knew Roll's parents, but can't really remember them. This is the first island that we land on in the game. Unlike the first Legends, where we were entirely on Catalog's island, in this game we explore a variety of different islands. Another thing that's very different from the previous game is that diggers as a whole are a little bit more part of the setting, and one of the ways that that's expressed is that in Yozyanke, and in one of the later towns as well, you can actually find a representative from digger headquarters who will issue you license exams. 
This is the game's difficulty setting, and I'll cover it here because this is where you first get access to change it. Essentially, you begin the game as a B-class digger. In order to achieve the A-class, you need to pass a test. This puts you in a preformed gauntlet of several rooms where you have to defeat every Reaver bot in the room in order to proceed on to the next room and so on until you finish it, and if you can finish it in time, congratulations, you get your promotion. The most notable thing about these tests is that you are given exactly fixed stats going in. What armor and gear you bring in, what special weapons, they're all gone. You have to beat this test with what's provided. The A rank test is not actually that hard. It took me like maybe two tries, because I'd played the first game and stuff, and the enemies are fairly simple and yada yada. The reward for going up to the A class is that you have access to an extra optional dungeon later in the game, and enemies drop significantly more zenny, but they are also hardier, do more damage to you throughout the game, and there is three different optional dungeons in the game, and they do actually have like semi-randomized enemy placement throughout them, and my understanding is harder licensed will result in more enemies, stronger enemies, and like denser enemies as well. So that's fun, right? Yeah, boosted health and boosted damage for enemies can be a little bit of lazy difficulty, I get it, but it also does really amp up the demand on your performance in this game. However, A-class probably is not all that bad, but you can go further. You can take the S-class test to give you a sense of how many attempts this thing took me. The S-class test took me like almost three hours of attempts, and there is a seven-minute time limit on it. You have to use throwing mechanics in order to deal with some of these rooms in any sort of manner that is remotely fast enough. Many of the enemies in this test can inflict status effects on you where you will be unable to attack for a few seconds, which, yes, status effects are a new thing in this game. There is damage-based effects, which interestingly will not kill you, but can drop you down to essentially 1 HP, where you are now in danger and if you get hit again, you're done. You can get paralyzed so that you move extremely slowly, like there's status effects in this game, and in the normal game, you can pick up and extend a medicine bottle, which is basically, you can have a certain number of charges of status clearing in it. You can't do that in the S-License exam. This test is brutal. It is the hardest thing in any of the Legend games, and honestly, one of the hardest things I had to do in Mega Man to date. And probably doing it first thing was not a great idea, because it made the rest of this game very difficult, too. Now, it did make the rest of this game extremely financially rewarding. The cool part about taking yourself all the way up to S rank is that you actually get a lot of zenny from enemies after you do it. The reward is well worth it, and you really do get enough funds to play with the special weapons in these games. I even had a couple of them maxed out by the end of the game, which never happened in the original, which was extremely stingy. My point is, is it is a really neat way to do difficulty to have the player have to unlock the harder difficulties, to have them have to prove that they are actually ready for what you're going to throw at them. Anyway, where was I? Oh, right, we were in Yazyanki Village. In order to finish the dropship, we have to go run a really quick dungeon. It has a very simple boss that actually has an optional weak point on its back. This whole dungeon is basically like an extension of the tutorial. It's very, very basic and simple. That's going to change. At the end of it, we do pick up a refractor that we'll be able to use to finish up the dropship. I have some other notes here that'll very, very quickly mention before we actually head to the Forbidden Island, because yes, despite the name and everything, we're already ready to head there. There is an interesting story that you can pick up from the locals' legends 
visions of a story of the goddess of the earth who hoarded supposedly keys and the goddess of the sky who hoarded gates and they fought at some point and the earth goddess locked the sky goddess away. It'll all come back is why I'm mentioning this. And we also can find some information about Mega Man's childhood, actually, and about how Beryl found him, apparently sealed in a crystal somewhere as a baby. Also, apparently Volnut got his name of Mega Man from Roll, who wanted to name him after a video game character. That's in-universe real fact, by the way. <laughs> anyway, we head back to the Flutter, and we actually have a world map we can fly around on, and we can go to the Forbidden Island, and it's a bit of an Arctic hellscape. The Forbidden Island is one of the most straightforward locations in Legends 2. It is a largely linear area that we're going to traverse, where we have to deal with a couple different bosses. There's a section where we have to duck out of the way of stampeding elephant reaver bots. This place actually kind of feels like a Mega Man stage. Heck, the boss of the stage, at the very end, we find this gigantic elephant-ish reaver bot that even has like a couple different attacks depending on like what phase it's in. It's still attacking very, very simply. It still feels a lot like a Legends 1 boss, but that's going to start fading away as we go. But rather than a dungeon exploration, this feels kind of like a 3D Mega Man stage. It's well done. At the end of the Forbidden Isle, we don't just find the people who have crashed there. We find two people who are sleeping in a crystal. This is Sarah and, I believe, Geats? Or is it Gats? Gates? I can't remember. There's two very similar G names, and one of them belongs to the robot dragon from earlier. Anyway, this is why I brought up the thing about Beryl apparently finding Baby Mega Man in a crystal earlier, because that can't be a coincidence, and it's not. I'll cut out a lot of information here, because at the time, they talk about a lot of stuff that you have zero context for, about genetic samples and aberrance, and I have no idea what was going on at the time. I'd understand it now, and we'll get back to what the actual plot of this game is in a little bit. Long story short, we find out that the person who appears to be Roll's mom is actually called Yuna, which means she may not be Roll's mom. We take Sarah and her, like, guardian-ish partner back to the ship, and it turns out they are looking for four keys. Basically, they promise, like, yeah, they're the keys to the motherload, the keys to a way to make infinite refractors. They know this because apparently these two people are ancients. They are people from the before times who built these runes. Of course, the Bonds were there at the time, too, and so the Bonds, along with some new helps like Glide and a couple other pirates we haven't met yet, are all very much like, well, what you're telling us is we need to get those keys. And thus begins the race between us and the pirates to get our hands on these four keys that are apparently sealed off across the region. And this makes up the majority part of this game, is traveling to these different islands and exploring their different runes in order to try to track down these keys. 
Our first stop is Manda Island, which is a fairly peaceful, green and lush, fairly standard island. It has the first optional dungeon in the game, which reuses music from the first Legends. It has a small town, which has a quiz minigame in it that goes straight to hell. God, I just got done a couple episodes ago complaining about the fact that Math Whirlwind had you just straight up taking a math test. This is you just straight up taking a school test. These are not in-universe questions. These are questions about pop culture and history and geography and all that kind of stuff. There is a 100-question quiz you can do that if you get the entire thing correct, you can get a key item that is used to make basically a Z-Saber special weapon. Which you can skip this if you want to pay 2 million zenny straight up, which even at S-licensed tier income is not going to happen. So, um, I hope you know which number of Madonna's album is like a virgin, because that is legitimately a question on this test. Anyway, before we can head to the runes underneath this island, we do need to fight off Tron Bond, who's busy invading. She has a giant, like, four-legged tank that she traipses around the outside of town with. Two things about the fight. First off, this is where me being on the S-License kicked my butt, and is where I first needed to go and spend all the money I'd earned in the optional dungeon and stuff on upgrading a special weapon, because there was no way in hell I was going to do enough damage with my buster to finish this fight in any reasonable amount of time before she killed me. And second off, the setup for this fight is fun, because at this point they know that Tron just has a crush on Mega Man, so she uses voice manipulation to make herself sound like Roll, just act like a complete pain in the neck to him. So this whole fight, you're listening to Tron pretending to be Roll, asking Mega Man to make sure he brings home milk, and basically trying to make it sound like Roll's mistreating Mega Man and using him as her errand boy while she's shooting at him. It's extremely Tron Bond, is what I'm saying. After that, we get our first serious dungeon of the game, the Pokhtarud, a jungle-themed dungeon? And they went way further in the dungeons in terms of developing them. There are multiple bosses in most of these dungeons that we have to fight as we go through. There's actually, like, unique elements to these dungeons and, like, places to explore that just exist for the sake of exploring them. There's a mechanic in this dungeon where the first time that we go through it, we end at a switch that we throw. And then when we go through that section again, a whole bunch of things that looked harmless but out of place are now, like, active traps, like damaging floor and turrets on the walls and stuff have all actually activated. They went a lot further in filling out these dungeons. We also meet our first new pirate in this dungeon, a dude who weirdly has the ability to levitate and just kind of has like a laid-back style named Bola. He is one of the first legitimately trickier bosses in the game. Tron was difficult previously because she was just really spongy. Bola's actually difficult. Most Legends 1 bosses you beat by just running circles around them and firing. Bola's form of like throwing knives and throwing out different weaponry at you and stuff has a tendency to throw it in front of you as well. Just trying to run circles oftentimes is not actually enough to dodge. You have to pay attention to what he's doing and actually dodge it. He'll even like run into melee to attack you. In one of the two fights that we get into, he disappears and summons down frog reaver bots and you really want to take them down very quick because if you don't defeat them before he comes back, they just like enrage and start zooming around the room. Speaking of frogs, there isn't just two fights with Bola in this dungeon, there is a fight with a giant frog reaver bot where mostly we want to stick on platforms that are raised up out of the ground to avoid various obstacles 
running around down low, the boss himself will like jump between these platforms and attack you with a big extending tongue or like throw out bubbles and we have to wait for him to open his mouth in order to shoot him. The bosses in this dungeon alone are more complex and more interesting than honestly the majority of boss fights throughout the entirety of Legends 1. And it's an area in which, like, this game is just drastically improved, is in its boss fights. After finishing up Manda Island, we head towards Nino Island, which is a really unique location. In the original Legends, there was a ruin that was the tutorial dungeon, which was actually just a giant pillar rising out of the sea. Well, Nino Island is built on one of those pillars. It's literally got a village sitting on top of it that is where we're going to be. We're going to have to defend that village from the pirates that are trying to attack it. I'm going to tell you, the village owners are completely paranoid about the pirates. So much so that they actually shoot down the flutter the first time that they come there, thinking we're pirates. Then we have to defend the island from pirates in various, like, generally endurance-style guard this location for X amount of time, because if the pirates break through, the town's over-panicky mayor will be all like, No, you'll never take the city alive! You'll never have the key! And then he hits a self-destruct button and blows up the island with us on it. There's a special game over if you lose these missions. Even after defeating the pirates and scaring them off, though, he won't let us into the actual ruins beneath the village. And in order to win his trust, we have to go take the fight to Glide's base over on Kablania Island. This is kind of just a completely irrelevant distraction. We don't even, like, fight Glide or anything in his base. We just get, like, a series of small encounters where we have to deal with different enemies each time. And it could have not been there, and I don't think anything would have really had to change in the game, but it's all right. Afterwards, we finally get permission from Nino Island's mayor to go explore the ruins, and... Uh, uh, this dungeon conceptually is really cool. The idea is that each floor of it can be flooded or unflooded, and whether they are flooded or not will change the nature of the dungeon. When it's flooded, certain things are more buoyant and can be moved around, whereas they're usually too heavy to move. Enemies will act differently. For instance, there's these shark-like reaver bots that just flop around uselessly if the floor is drained out, but if the floor is flooded, then obviously they're going to be swimming around and attacking you. Heck, there's even a room where we need it flooded so that there's a manta ray robot swimming around that we can jump on the back of and use as platforms. Is this a really cool setup for a dungeon? Absolutely. Does this dungeon suck? Yes, and it's because any time you have to go through a flooded section of this dungeon, your move speed is cut down to like a third of what it normally is. And yes, there is a version of the jet skates you can come into here with that let you still do the dash underwater. It is still at a lower speed, and God forbid you get hit by anything, because your knockback and falling animations are going to be playing out at a third of the speed. It didn't need to be like this, and it is excruciatingly painful. You have to do the majority of this dungeon while it is flooded in order to get first key items and stuff, and... <sighs> at the bottom of it, at least, there is a save point. 
before we get into our fight with our next pirate, Claymore. The dude is basically built like a metal tank. He is just a suit of armor that doesn't even bother moving other than to turn around and just fires all sorts of different projectiles, including like homing bombs and spinning lasers and all sorts of stuff at us. And when we defeat him, the game is at least nice enough to let us make our escape from the dungeon while the entire place is drained out. It still takes several minutes to leave, and then we have to fight Claymore again at the top, which the save point disappears between these two fights and the five-minute run back out of this dungeon. <sighs> the Nino Island runes are the worst thing, and the underwater mechanics of this dungeon are the worst thing. And it's such a shame, because this could have been such a cool dungeon, and instead it is the worst part of all three Legends games, hands down. And of course, they brought back the walking around underwater thing for the S-rank optional dungeon, which we can find on the next island of Salkata, a desert island with a large, like, Arabic-inspired city that's actually pretty nice to look at. Before we can access the Salkata ruins, of course, we do have to do something on the island, which, this time, it's take out a bunch of the bonds. The bonds have basically taken over the city, so we need to bust our way through small individual encounters and deal with enemies. I will say that this is the point at which the game started getting much easier. Because towards the end of this location, you can access a shop that just has some extremely good buster parts and is where we can finally buy, like, the best armor in the game. Once you actually have, like, a half-decent buster and don't have to rely on your special weapon all the time, things start to feel noticeably easier. Our boss fight at the end of this section is also kind of interesting. It's Teasel. His robot is basically using a priceless statue that's a cultural relic to these people as a hostage. The idea is that you can very slowly whittle down Teasel, firing off like one or two shots at a time and waiting for him to finish using the statue as a shield, or you can just destroy the statue and literally pay an apology later. Then you can attack him freely, but the robot will now actually start like diving around the arena at you. It is interesting to have a boss fight where you actually have decisions about how to tackle it. Once we've stopped Teasel, we can finally enter the Salkata Runes, which might be my favorite dungeon in the game. There is a couple things in this dungeon that kind of suck. One is the introduction of the invisible trap enemies, which, when I say invisible, I mean literally the only way to know they're there is to step in them, and then we'll just grab you and do a small amount of damage, but also leave you vulnerable to anything else that might be attacking you, so that's a pain. The second is a room. I'm just going to get this out of here right now. The S-rank exam was the hardest thing in the game, but this was the most frustrating room in the game. It just involves having to run through a large, wide-open room with two turret enemies that are constantly firing homing missiles. The missiles are firing out way too fast to shoot them down and actually still be able to move. The turret robots themselves, I swear, have the HP of full-on boss fights, so shooting them down is not an option. You're also trying to platform around these, like, thin paths across magma in the stage because it's kind of a fiery crypt aesthetic. And if you land in the fire in this place, you first off get lit on fire, which means for several seconds you're going to take damage from a status effect. And also, while you're in the magma, your HP drops super fast, and it's so, so easy in here for a missile to just, like, sneak up on you, hit you, potentially chain hit you with other missiles, knocking you into the lava and causing you to take a ton of damage, and... <sighs> It genuinely felt like luck whether or not I was making it out of that room, and that's not good. The rest of this dungeon, though, is great. Like I mentioned, it's got kind of this fiery crypt aesthetic going on, and they leaned into it with a bit of, like, what feels like Resident Evil influence. 
So you get stuff where, like, you'll go through this room one time, and it'll be fine, and you'll throw a switch at the end and walk back and get ambushed by reaver bots. Or there's a room where you're going down a corridor, and there's a window beside you, and there's this giant reaver bot that you'll hear stomping around outside, and you'll turn to look at it, and you can see it, and then it'll turn to look at you and slam through the glass to attack you. It's really cool. This giant reaver bot, by the way, is a boss in this dungeon that you have to fight, but we actually have to, like, run from it at first, and we have to keep passing through its room while it's invincible before we can, like, throw some switches that will remove its shielding and allow us to actually fight it, which is a really cool set piece. Towards the end, we also have to deal with Tron and Bon Bon, and at first we even actually have to team up with them, where we have to shoot some enemies to disable them so the Bonds can pick them up and throw them at this giant stalagmite thing to make it fall or whatever, and then later we do actually have to fight them again, Tron comes at you with a variant of the Gustav that has a shield on it and will deflect attacks most of the time if it's not attacking you, and also her serve bots are there fighting you at the same time. Bon Bon we actually have to chase as he tries to make the escape with the key at the end. I think you can game over if he actually escapes, but you can also pick him up and throw him in the magma in the room, and the ending cutscene is literally you just watching him sink into the magma, and Volnut, he's a baby. Volnut, what the hell? And speaking of Volnut, what the hell? After we beat Tron, there's a whole scene where it's just the serve bots and Volnut staring openly at Tron, who's off screen because apparently Tron's clothes got blown off, and Volnut is just taking it all in. This game does technically have the morality system from Legends 1 back in it as like a side thing, but man, Volnut is a good boy, but he is also not a good boy in this dungeon, you know what I'm saying? Anyway, I don't have a whole lot of detail about how Bon Bon actually fights because I might have uh, had that blade arm that I mentioned from earlier, basically the Z-Saber. Long story short, anything you can manage to get close enough to to attack with it absolutely melts. And I will say that after watching the speedrun for this game, the special weapons are actually really effective in this game, and some of them can just obliterate bosses if you bring the right weapon to the right fight. Anyway, that's the third runes. The fourth runes are actually back on Yozonki Island. Before we can get access to the runes there, we need to go deal with the fact that the pirates have apparently built a weapon that's running on the train tracks through town. And so we're going to take our own battle train to go fight them. This is reminiscent of the sort of auto-scrollery style boss fights from Legends 1, where we have to protect the vehicle that we're riding on, in this case a train from various attacks, while also dealing with a very well-armed train car that's coming at us. That's piloted by both Glide and the Bonds. There's even one part in the fight where the train goes way too far away for us to fight, and in order to deal with it, it's firing missiles with servbots riding it that we need to literally grab out of the air and toss back at it, which is kind of fun. That's actually the last pirate boss battle in the entire game. Once we have finally dealt with Glide and the Bonds and put them aside, we get access to the Yazyanke runes, which is an ice dungeon.
It's not actually as bad as I make it sound, but there is a little bit of platforming that can get a little bit irritating in this place, thanks to, you guessed it, ice physics, though not nearly as bad as you might fear. I'm pretty sure this dungeon actually has, like, a couple different legitimate routes through it, including, like, optional shortcuts you can open up, and I really like that kind of freeform exploration design to it. There's also a fun room down at the bottom, which is just this massive open cavern where we have to chase down these key bots while Reaver bots pop out of the snow and stuff to try to stop us. It does have one of those stupid turrets from the previous dungeon as an enemy in the center, and it can even get up and walk around and stuff. And that's how I know that these things have boss level HP, because this time you really do need to take it down. Those things are like the hardest enemy in the game. They're the worst thing. The actual boss of this dungeon is easier than they are. It's kind of the Legends equivalent of, like, the Yellow Devil or anything. It's a big amorphous enemy that changes shape and sometimes throws out pieces of itself at you and is invincible sometimes just because. It is actually a fairly varied and fun boss fight, though. The invincibility phases are fairly short. Like, it does actually change the arena around it every once in a while, and you need to jump up to a higher floor to avoid being inflected with burning down on the bottom floor. And then, this dungeon's actually nice enough that once we get the key at the end, it just teleports us out. God, I wish they just did that for the water dungeon. Anyway, with that, we finally acquired the four keys, and we bring them back to the stinky butt. I'm sorry, the sulfur bottom. We're all ready to be led to the mother load, but that's when it turns out that, surprise, Sarah's just been waiting for us to bring her the keys the whole time because she's got a purpose for them. Her partner apparently just hacks and takes over the entire sulfur bottom, and everything's about to go to hell. Everyone on board blanks out. Is this the end for our heroes? No. Yuna, the woman who has been appearing to be Roll's mother, steps in and her partner, her robot dragon, basically interferes with Sarah's partner to undo the control of the ship. We head up to the top of the sulfur bottom to deal with Sarah's own dragon robot thing. This fight basically involves the boss swooping down at you and you kind of having to trade fire with it whenever it comes down into range. If you have a ranged special weapon equipped when dealing with this boss, it goes fairly quickly, or could. I had a melee weapon still equipped, so this was a really long slow slog as I did like a couple percentage of HP every pass. Eventually it gets injured and lands down on the deck and you can rush through the final phase of it, but it took me a while. And once the fight is over, it's time for the plot. Sit down, brace yourself, and grab some popcorn, because it's time to explain the backstory of the Megamind Legends franchise. So, in the aftermath of the fight with Sarah's Guardian, it exploded and knocked Fulman out. A lot of this stuff is told to you out of order, so I'm going to piece it together with just what we learn all together. Yuna shows up to basically reboot Volnut by using the backup of his data from, well, Data the Monkey, our save point. The one who he learned in Legends 1 is literally a backup of Mega Man. He is literally a save point. What this means is that Volnut now gets his memory back. He begins to remember a man by the name of The Master. The Master was the last remaining human, and he'd been alive for 3,000 years in a place called Elysium, a space station that is also kind of the moon where whatever the heck was going on in Elysium, it allowed the Master to live basically forever. He no longer needed to eat or sleep or drink. He never risked getting sick. He never got old. He could live literally forever there. And from that location, the Master's been overseeing the Earth. 
creating beings to be sent down to the Earth, to populate it, to live on it, and then when those things got out of hand, using the mother system aboard Elysium to essentially destroy life and try again. The same mother system that the antagonist of the first game, Juno, petitioned in order to try to destroy all life on Catalox. Eventually, though, the Master one day created the Carbons. The Carbons are created in humanity's image, and they are created with what he remembers as humanity's imperfections. They get hungry, they get thirsty, they get sick, they get old and die. What the Master says is that in giving these creations, these Carbons, these flaws, these things that make them suffer, they've remembered what joy is like. They've rediscovered happiness. Compared to the complete stagnation of Elysium, that's what he was looking for. The joy of humanity. They're not human. The beings of this world aren't human, and Beryl later notes like, oh, this explains why our history books just start one day. We were literally just made. We didn't evolve. The Master says that this is what he was looking for all along. So he asks his most trusted assistant, Mega Man Trigger, the one we now know as Valma, to take him down to Earth and protect him for a while as he lives among the Carbons. He's happy again for the first time in a long, long time in his existence. But of course, being apart from Elysium, well, his body's gotten used to being effectively immortal because of Elysium, so it's going to kill him, and he knows that that's going to happen, but he's actually happy with it. So his final request to Trigger is, these people deserve to live. I want the Carbons to succeed humanity, so I need you to go destroy the Mother System. The whole system is still there, it is still backed up to wipe out my creation so we can start over, and that can never be activated. These people deserve their futures. What we'll find out from data is Volnut proceeded to basically try to do this. The first person who tried to stop him was Yuna, who was essentially one of two bosses of the Mother System. She was the part that lingered on Earth and handled everything that happened to Earthside. What happened somewhere in those conflicts is Yuna ended up having to leave her original body and jumped into the body of Roll's mother. Because she was no longer in her original body, which was literally part of and connected to the mother system, she was finally free to see it from an outside perspective and decided, you know what, I'm going to be neutral in this. I'm not going to stop you from destroying the system anymore. This angered Sarah, the other half of the system who remained up in Elysium. Sarah came down to Earth in order to fight Trigger, but she wasn't actually strong enough on Earth to defeat him. However, he wasn't strong enough to defeat her either, and they were both seriously wounded. In order to avoid destruction, they both basically had to enter stasis and restart their bodies. In Trigger's case, this involved putting all of his data into, well, data to back it up, and then reverting his body back to that of a child, which Beryl then found while Sarah herself ended up in a crystal in a similar stasis and rebirth on the Forbidden Island instead. And that leads us back to present day. Falnut has his memories back, and Sarah is off to go take the keys and start up the mother system and end all existence. We need to go stop her, but fortunately, Yuna has a way we can do that by taking a shuttle out to Elysium. We're headed to the moon.
Before we can access the main core of Elysium, we need to traverse its defense gate. This is a big, fairly intimidating dungeon full of very high HP enemies where you have to fight your way through a lot of rooms. The doors will lock. It also has some, like, gravity-switching shenanigans in it that are supposed to make it difficult to navigate because certain paths are, like, you may not be able to jump over certain walls or doors just weirdly will not open in low gravity. And I don't know if I just got really lucky and just, like, happened upon the right path, but the majority of the dungeon was honestly very linear and not difficult. Part of the reason that it was not difficult is that the previous dungeon has half of the materials for the Shining Laser Weapon. The very first room of Elysium has a chest that contains the other half of the Shining Laser Recipe, and if you bring those back to roll and upgrade the Shining Laser even, like, once, it obliterates this dungeon. Almost every enemy in here drops health and weapon ammunition, so you can use the Shining Laser on basically everything. This is more or less most of our final test. Once you finish... The defense gate, you can open a shortcut back to the entrance, and you'll arrive in the residential area, which is this weirdly ethereal, like, not teleporter maze, but teleporter series of connected rooms that is just, like, modeled as, like, floating islands in a weird void space. It's kind of neat. Then eventually we reach the core of Elysium, which, in order to work our way through that as a final gauntlet, we have to run through the four bosses of the previous dungeons again. They all have a little bit more health and a little bit more power to them, but you also probably have a little more health and a lot more power because you have the Shining Laser by now. At the very end, we finally get our showdown with Sarah. Sarah, it turns out, was bluffing about activating Mother. Sort of. She still plans to do it, but she wasn't going to do it until Volnut got there, because she wants to fight Volnut specifically. She never understood why the Master would do something as illogical as create flawed creations or choose his own death. That made no sense to her. And she similarly is part of the Mother system. She could never understand why the Master would want that system to be destroyed. And yet, part of her coding is, listen to the Master. And this has always been a conflict, so her thought is, if I get rid of Volnut, he is the last person pushing for the Master's will. That deals with the problem. And this is how we get into our fight with the hardest boss in any of the Legends games, Sarah. The first phase of Sarah, because of course it's a two-phase fight, has a ton of shades of Mega Man Juno. In fact, she's even wearing, like, armor that kind of resembles Juno in this phase. But the point is, is all of her attacks are based around teleporting, reappearing somewhere at random, and then doing one of a few different attacks. But Juno wishes his attacks were this brutal. A couple of her attacks are fairly easy to deal with, like she does have a dive attack that is easy enough to escape, assuming she didn't, like, teleport in right next to you. But she has one attack that involves, like, waves of homing shots that you need to keep alternating which direction you jump between if you want to dodge them. And also they explode, so if you're too close to a wall, the explosions will catch you. She has one move that is really brutal, where she makes the gravity massive and spreads around these, like, bouncing bombs around the room 
and stuff, and also does a shockwave attack. And long story short, it is exceedingly difficult to avoid taking damage in this phase. The only good part of her doing this attack is that it does give you a ton of time to rack up damage with the Shining Laser, because the Shining Laser is the best weapon in the game, but it does require you to stand still in order to use it as a weapon. The hope is that you've gotten enough upgrades on your max life, your armor, your energy canteen, to be able to beat her before she runs you out of health. And if Phase 1 has a couple attacks that are very difficult to deal with, Phase 2 is just entirely a nightmare. Phase 2 involves Sarah going full JRPG final boss. She transforms into this giant angelic-like being that is absolutely massive and fights you in like this nebulous space arena. She has a huge cleave that you need to dodge by dodge rolling at the right time, which, by the way, they didn't fix the dodge roll timing controls. I still cannot do it consistently. It's a problem. But she has like attacks where she summons down waves of meteors or attacks where she flies around above you with like an array of laser beams under her. Some of these attacks are extremely difficult to dodge. And then in the second half of the phase, she can also throw out a miniature black hole that will constantly drag you towards it, ensuring that her stuff is now even harder to dodge consistently. Legitimately, I just kind of needed to get lucky enough to melt her before she melted me. Now, admittedly, I was on the hardest difficulty, but my understanding is she's pretty difficult regardless. She was a hell of a final boss, which, given that this is the Legends timeline, which is supposed to be the final section, the final story in the classic timeline, she's technically the finalist boss. The most final boss. After the fight, Yuna shows up and convinces Sarah to take on a new body that's free of the system. The body that I think originally belonged to Yuna's Dragon Guardian when it wasn't in dragon form. This finally gives Sarah the opportunity to look at everything in the Mother System without being intrinsically programmed to support the Mother System, and she goes, okay, let's change to protecting the Carbons. That's what the Master wanted of us. They're going to have to, because now that the Mother System's been disabled, apparently there's these things called the Elder Systems down on the Earth that are going to start activating, and even Yuna doesn't know the full extent of them, but they're like apparently a failsafe of some sort that they're going to have to deal with. They're ready to deal with it. But first they need to get off of Elysium, because for some reason that shuttle that we used earlier just is no longer working, which means we're stuck on the moon. Mega Man says something to the extent of, I know Roll, even if it's difficult, she'll come looking for us. Cut to the aftermath of the credits, where we get to see Tron and Roll trying to work together to build a rocket that'll be able to take them to space, and unfortunately constantly ending up in fights with each other. And Data turns to the camera and goes, Sorry, Mega Man, I guess you'll be stuck up there a little longer. And before we get into the pain of that sentence, roll credits. So I promised a history lesson. Mega Man Legends 2 was released in 2000 on the PlayStation and the PC. It got a port in, I think, 2003, 2004-ish to the PlayStation Portable. It got a variety of 
very early cell phone spin-off games, which were kind of just basic games that happened to have, like, a Mega Man Legends skin on them. And then later on, in 2008, there was, well, I'll give you the translated title, Great Adventure on Five Islands, which was a mobile game that used the actual Legends visual engine to tell a kind of backstory thing about Mega Man and Roll just going exploring different islands, which I don't think I'll be able to play because I don't know if that data exists anywhere or is playable on any sort of modern hardware, which means this is the last Legends game. There isn't another one, but there almost was. In 2010, Capcom announced the Mega Man Legends 3 project. The idea wasn't just to have it be a game that they released for the 3DS either, it was going to be a game made with fan input, with fans helping decide which designs to use for new characters or to have input on bosses and stuff, all delivered by passion and devotion from fans and a dev team that really wanted to make this happen. And unfortunately, that was also the problem. Capcom had never officially greenlit Legends 3 in the sense of, yes, here's the money, go make it. The team had enough of a budget to screw around and toy with, and their hope was that if they got together a bunch of displayed interest and built a demo and sold that demo and demonstrated, hey, there's interest in this project, there are people who want this, Capcom would give them the go-ahead. And this is where the Keiji Inafune thing happens. Keiji Inafune is a man that I don't like to talk about for a variety of reasons, but it's important to understand he was a major part of Mega Man by that time. His name was in the credits of pretty much every Mega Man game as a major part of its development or production. At this point in time, Keiji Inafune decided he was pretty much done with Capcom. I remember him becoming very openly critical about Japanese game development, just like getting stuck in a rut and never doing anything new. Statements that would become kind of ironic when he would leave Capcom and proceed to create his own company and try to kickstart a new Mega Man and eventually even a new Mega Man Legends. We will talk about Mighty Number no. 9. I will do an episode on it eventually. I think it's close enough to Mega Man to be worthwhile. As for the Legends successor, the Legends of Red Ash, he lost so much faith due to the Mighty Number no. 9 debacle that I don't even think that got funded. Anyway, my point is, whatever actually happened behind closed doors, he left and without him being there as a veteran to back Mega Man, a bunch of Mega Man projects got cancelled. Legends 3 among them, a mere handful of days before the demo was set to release. There has not been a new development for Mega Man Legends since that cancellation back in 2010. Volnut has been stuck on the moon for 22 years now. <laughs> And Legends 3 may be the single most requested game in the Mega Man franchise to happen next, and it keeps not happening. This series ends on a gigantic cliffhanger. A cliffhanger that doesn't even make sense, because we had a shuttle that could take us back and forth from Elysium, and I don't know why it stopped working all of a sudden. But that unnecessary cliffhanger ending, which to be fair, they probably expected to make a third game much sooner. That unnecessary cliffhanger ending, and... The entire dryness of the Nino Island arc, except for the wet part, which was the crappy water runes, those are the only real big problems I have with Legends 2. Because otherwise, this game is great. The bosses and enemies are way more varied and way more interesting and way more genuinely challenging. The dungeons are way more involved. The characters are still really animated and fun. We get a lot more plot about what's actually going on in the world, and it's, it's interesting, and I actually really like the backstory 
of the Legends universe, and I'm just going to say, the whole idea of the Master finally finding his perfect creations and finding joy in his creations when he creates something deliberately flawed again. There's parallels to a certain major other game that released very recently that dared to kind of have that same sort of message that I'm not going to name because that would be a big spoiler for that game, but I'm sure some people who are listening know what game I'm talking about, about joy coming from weakness and suffering and flaws, and just how important that is. It controls better, it looks better, it has deeper systems and deeper customization, and is more rewarding, and go play Mega Man Legends 2, it's good! Even the music is a step up. Now, it's still Legend-style music, it is still midis, it is still suffering from the problem that a lot of its loops are on the shorter side, it does have a huge soundtrack, and still got like 80 different tracks, and once again, pretty much every boss in the game has its own theme, so that's cool too. One of the ways, though, in which this game actually steps up music, which is really, really interesting, is that every island and segment of the game has lay motifs, recurring musical themes and sets of instruments to them. When you go to Manda Island, for instance, the surface of the island, the village itself, the runes, even the frog boss fight at the end have similar instruments, the same small melody playing as part of the tracks. Manda Island has a cohesive musical identity. The Bonds have a cohesive musical identity, and it gives the whole soundtrack a strong identity as a result. It is still a little bit difficult to pick three specific tracks which stand out in the face of that, because sometimes the value of these tracks is in what they do with other tracks, but this is the best soundtrack in the Legends series by a noticeable margin. It's still not quite up there on individual levels with classic Mega Man, but it's still good, so here's three highlights. The first is the one good part of the god dang water temple. The dungeon itself already has this really kind of gorgeous ambience to it, using echoing bells to play really well with the fact that it's an underwater dungeon. The boss fight, interestingly, goes almost even more peaceful and serene with it to create something that's really kind of gorgeous and I really like a lot. Next up, on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, is the theme of the Defense Zone, the main dungeon part of Elysium. This spin on Elysium's theme really nails the like technical sci-fi zone notes of it. It keeps a really upbeat pace that really fits with the brush of a final challenge dungeon. This is the kind of theme where you can close your eyes and you can probably picture what Elysium looks like in your head, because the music just fits so perfectly.
finally, I'll go back to something peaceful again. It's the theme for the Flutter is just one of my favorite pieces out of Legends. It is a slowed-down version of the Flutter's theme from the original Legends, which was already a pretty good track. But something about this one, it hits this wistfulness and level of comfort that makes it feel like you really have come home. I imagine for those who have played Legends 2, this track is just a piece of nostalgia. That does it for Mega Man Legends 2. The next episode, I guarantee you, it's going to be a three-week wait for the next episode. This one I can say in advance. Because we're basically leaving 2000 at this point. We're heading into 2001. Both the first and second entries in a new Mega Man sub-series happened in 2001. They are big games, and they're games I'm going to want to stretch out. So I'm just going to tell you right now, the next game we're playing is also a big one. The next game we're playing is Battle Network. Until then, if you've liked what you've heard on the show, please feel free to hit me up at whatamipodcastingfor at gmail.com. Follow on Twitter at whatamipodcast4 is in the number four. Stop by waaipf.podbean.com to get the most recent updates and get an RSS feed directly or find us on your podcast provider of choice. Thanks for listening. I've been Garlisle. And just remember, Mega Man Legends 3 almost did happen once. There's even proof of it. Here, listen to the theme of the flutter that will never be. cliffhanger that doesn't even make sense because we had a shovel a shovel uh, wait is that how data got back did data yoink our shuttle and that's why we don't have data this is your doing